just a simple question of what ends up on the cutting room floor versus what goes into the newscast in a given day is completely loaded with, you know, our own life experiences, our perceptions of our audience, our internalized biases, you know, internalized racism or assumptions about the race of the people that the stories are about. In 2020, can journalists still expect to be entirely objective? Were they ever really objective to begin with? What about the journalists who took a stand? I'm Amelia Brust, and this is It's All Journalism. These are questions Lewis Raven Wallace started asking himself after he was fired from his public radio job for refusing to take down a personal blog post shortly after Donald Trump's inauguration. The post proclaimed, Objectivity is dead, and that for him, as a transgender man, neutrality has never been an option. He started researching journalists who drew from their own perspectives to create news that also rejected the idea of pure objectivity and what happened to them as a result. The findings are in his book, The View from Somewhere, and the accompanying podcast of the same name. Lewis, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Do you mind starting with uh, just kind of giving like a little bit of a background on, you know, what led you to starting to research the book and decide to also serialize it in podcast form? This was at this point right after Donald Trump had been elected and then inaugurated. And I was really thinking hard about how journalists were going to kind of step up to the rise of white supremacy and transphobia and did some kind of thinking out loud about that on my blog on Medium. And then it's kind of a long story, but I was fired for writing that blog and refusing to take it down. And um, in particular, my employer's Marketplace, which is a show that's owned by American Public Media, were concerned about the appearance of bias or partisanship in my questioning this ideal of objectivity and talking about the Trump administration as benefiting from white supremacy. And I disagreed so strongly with the kind of premise that journalists shouldn't be questioning objectivity publicly in this time or talking about racism and transphobia publicly in this time that I ended up really at odds with the people I was working for. All of that said, in the blog post I referenced, you know, there's this long history of non-objective journalism or journalists who stood outside of kind of the system and pushed back in different ways. And that has been truthful and factual and important journalism throughout U.S. history. So the opportunity arose after I got fired for me to do more writing about that. And that is what led to the research into my book, The View from Somewhere, and then my podcast by the same name. How did you know where to start your research for the book? Because the the people that you profile in the book are are not household names. Did you start with one name and then that name, you know, led you to another and another? Or did you have some more like centralized, you know, reference that you could use as a jumping off point for this research? There is one book that was really important to sort of kicking off my research. It's called Just the Facts. And it's about the early development of journalistic objectivity as an ideal, mostly in the 1800s. So the author, David Mindich, who's a professor at Temple University, in the journalism department, he's actually the head of the journalism department there now. He looked into sort of the earliest examples of balance and nonpartisanship and editorial independence in U.S. journalism and documented that in this wonderful history book, Just the Facts. 
And one of the profiles that he does is about Ida B. Wells and her reporting beginning in the 1890s upon lynching and how she really pushed back on the kind of mainstream white-owned framing of lynching as a sort of necessary evil and that there was this really kind of horrifying way of quote-unquote balancing stories about lynching that sort of said, oh, well, you know, on the one hand, mob violence bad, but on the other hand, this Black person who was killed, you know, did something bad or was a criminal in some way. And so that story about Ida B. Wells and the issue of balance and how racialized and often just racist balance in white-run news media has been really, really resonated for me with my experience actually covering Black Lives Matter and how stories about police shootings of unarmed Black people would often similarly be balanced to sort of hold a false equivalency between, you know, the perspective of police and the humanity of a person who had been killed. And so it began to really come into focus for me how balance, journalistic balance in and of itself has always been sort of tied up with power and oppression and identity, which was something that I had a sense of for myself before, just being a journalist from a marginalized community, being transgender and coming into journalism from activism, but really clarifying that there had always been people like Ida B. Wells who were really actively pushing back on that. So she was a starting point and then, but then so was Black Lives Matter in the present day and then it all kind of came together. And regarding uh, Black Lives Matter, you talk in the beginning of the book about a really pivotal moment for you when about the same time that Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, there was another police-involved shooting of an African-American man in Ohio where near where you were working at the time, John Crawford. And you talked in the book about how at first you did what you always did when incidents like this came up. You kind of just went off of the you know police report and you know, you didn't really do much further digging and just kind of moved on. But then once everything sort of kicked off in Ferguson, it kind of made you question, wait a minute. And you you went back to that story and your station where you were working started doing some more follow up and digging a little deeper. And I just wanted to, you know, hear more about maybe if you've seen other journalists or other outlets kind of taking that approach ever since that time? Sure. So I really saw sort of from the inside how, quote unquote, outside activism, you know, activism from people who weren't officially journalists and media work from people who weren't officially journalists could and did influence the journalism itself. So John Crawford III was was an unarmed black man, 22 years old, who was killed inside of a Walmart by a white police officer four days before Michael Brown was killed. And then after the protest movement arose in Ferguson, and there was a lot of really strategic and intentional pushing that Black Lives Matter movement activists did to try to get media outlets to cover the deaths of Black people at the hands of police more proactively. And it was really as a direct result of that sort of pressure that our coverage of John Crawford III changed. The coverage of Ferguson obviously was heavily influenced by that sort of strategy and activism. And then all around the country, newspapers were looking into and covering the deaths of 
unarmed black people, but also all deaths at the hands of police in new and different ways. And so there was some amount of agency for me there being the managing editor, um, being a white person with kind of a background in some of this kind of activism. You know, I was interested in it and I wanted to do the right thing and, you know, in some ways sort of respond to the Black Lives Matter movement in a responsible way within my newsroom. But a, a lot of newsrooms were really pushed in that direction by the leadership and media activism of Black Lives Matter. And so it really taught me a lot about the kind of dynamic relationship between media activism and mainstream media. And that, you know, what we consider the thing that we talk about as news judgment and journalism, you know, what makes a story can really be profoundly influenced and in some cases kind of overnight by social justice movements. It is really interesting how much, you know, how much of the power in terms of what is considered newsworthy is held by, you know, editors and, and managing editors. And and you, you do talk a bit in the book about, you know, how it, it's it's up to those who are the leaders in the newsroom who choose the stories to kind of really consider why one thing is a story and another is not. That to me is kind of like a running theme throughout this book. Like what makes something worthy of coverage and another is is not and can just be ignored. Yeah, and that's kind of the first, if you will, frontier of objectivity, you know, is this moment of news judgment that journalism and journalists who claim objectivity are still nonetheless always making an extremely subjective decision at the point of deciding what to report on. And then, of course, it follows also how to report on it and whose voices are included and so on. But just the simple question of what ends up on the cutting room floor versus what goes into the newscast in a given day is completely loaded with you know, our own life experiences, our perceptions of our audience, our internalized biases, you know, internalized racism or assumptions about the race of the people that the stories are about. And I'd seen this over and over again in newsrooms, you know, groups of entirely white groups of editors sort of deciding to do a story on something that they were seeing in their neighborhoods, right, in, say, the city of Chicago. And, you know, in the city of Chicago, most neighborhoods are not white neighborhoods, And so this idea that this group of white people could sit around and really responsibly and sort of neutrally make decisions about what's the news for the whole city based on um, just their own subjective observations of what's going on in their communities, it's very, very common, but it's often uninvestigated when it's coming from people with privilege. So, you know, white people, men, cisgender people, and where you get into this really sort of messy thing and the thing that I'm trying to problematize throughout the book and podcast is that in spite of that fact, it's often, you know, people of color, trans and queer people who are sort of accused of not being able to be objective on the issues that are close to to us. And so there's this, I think, quite oppressive and harmful double standard that plays out in the name of objectivity. Um, And again, the first kind of frontier of that is news judgment and these meetings or split second decisions about what's going to be considered important today for our audiences. And you say that kind of one of the reasons that you sort of got into journalism in the first place, having previously been a community activist and working with the communities that newsrooms maybe don't cover as much, 
you came into news sort of via an avenue that was designed to diversify newsrooms. But then you say that once you got there, you were basically told to like steer clear of writing stories about, you know, some of these communities that you had actually worked with and communities that you were a part of yourself, which is, you know, it's very, it's just like, in a way, it's not surprising to me, but it's also like, but then why are you, why did they bring you there? Like, what exactly did they want from you, if not that perspective? Yeah, and this is actually the next episode of our podcast, The View from Somewhere, is specifically about kind of the issue of diversity and tokenism in public media and in liberal media kind of environments, because there is a lot of talk about diversity and talk about the value that's placed on diversity. But I believe very strongly that diversity without also shifting power structures and making um, meaningful space for diverse voices and for leadership and structural change, diversity without those things is tokenism. So it's saying, you know, we want you in here sort of so that we can check off a box that, you know, we have a person of color in our newsroom and we have a transgender person in our newsroom, but we don't want you to challenge us in any way. And that is, I think, pretty much the definition of, of tokenism, you know, using somebody as a token or a symbol of their identity without being actually interested or having space for the ways in which that identity or that experience might be a real challenge to a homogenous space or might require that space to change. And so, you know, and that's not to sort of flatten out the experiences of people of color or trans people or anybody else as inevitably bringing the same thing. You know, sort of part of the point is that real diversity should actually lead to more conflict and disagreement about what is what's a real good story and what is true and, you know, these kinds of questions. Um, and but it really does and will require newsrooms to rethink kind of their values in particular around objectivity. And so objectivity was this kind of blanket value that was communicated to mean that journalists should not do stories about things with which we have like a personal or intimate connection. But of course, that's an incredibly complicated and subjective question in and of itself. And the interpretation there is often like, you know, along the lines of, you know, that black people are too close to sort of black community issues or a trans person might be too close to trans um, activism, in my case, uh, to report on it, which completely overlooks the inherent bias that a cisgender person who knows nothing about trans people is also going to have in reporting a trans story. So we can't diversify without addressing power dynamics, and we can't do that without addressing the myth of objectivity and neutrality. Mm -hmm. And then the one question I do have, though, is um, I wonder, and maybe maybe you cover this in the episode, so maybe I'm I'm jumping ahead here. But if you bring someone on staff um, to your news organization because they bring a more diverse perspective, whatever that may be, race, gender, orientation, religion, language skills that are different from what your existing staff has, et cetera. What would you then say, how to make sure that that person is then not like pigeonholed? Like if you uh, hire a, a Latino a reporter because you realize that you have like no connection to the Latino community in your coverage area and um, you hire this person because they do, 
how do you then make sure that you're not just hiring them to only do stories about the Latino community? And if they, you know, how do you make sure then they can, they can contribute, you know, other stories if they want to, that you don't, you know, you don't give the same type of assignments to the same person just because they fit a specific demographic. We do see that a lot, you know, where the the only person of color in a given newsroom is like hired to be the, the race reporter. I mean, that's like a real phenomenon that happens all the time. And so, of course, I think in an ideal world, um, that person doesn't have to be the only person of color in the newsroom. You know, there's also people in other positions and in leadership and people who are reporting not explicitly on race, you know, who are valued for the wholeness of their experience in that context all of that said like you know transgender people are a tiny minority it's not strange that i have been the only transgender person in all the newsrooms i've worked in it's just sort of a reality (laughs) and i've had some pretty good experiences with newsroom leaders um really letting me kind of self-determine around how much i wanted to report on trans issues and trans community and trusting my impulses and listening to my pitches and the points that I had to make about that and just being respectful and treating me as a whole human being and seeing me as somebody who can simultaneously be, you know, an expert on my own experience and on my community and a journalist who looks at other people's experiences and other people's communities and looks for truth there too. So um, I think that's also a matter of, you know, really and truly seeing everyone that you work with in a three-dimensional way and not as sort of either or, you know, either you're um, this trans person or you're this just a journalist person, right? But that you Mm -hmm. can fully be both. Then that makes me um, wonder uh, about um, another point I I had um, told you I wanted to touch on was that, um, you know, in addition to... uh, in, in addition to the work that journalists produce while they're on the clock, they're also expected to be connected to the community and be connected to readers on social media. And we all know that, you know, pretty much every self-respecting news organization has some kind of social media policy. And pretty much that those policies all just say, like, you can't, you know, express like overt, like, you know, political opinions or you can't say anything on social media that could potentially, you know, um, color your work or make people think that you are swayed one way or the other. But then at the same time, you know, many journalists use those outlets to also just be themselves and to, you know, engage as humans with with the world and with readers and whatnot. So, I always wonder, like, how are you expected to, like, be a person on social media, seem like an approachable person who can relate to sources or relate to readers and whatnot, and then also, like, not be opinionated? Like, when are you exactly supposed to draw the line on social media? And also, I think maybe you mentioned this on the podcast, um, should this still apply to freelancers who have to... Um, write for a bunch of different organizations that all have different rules. And those organizations don't have the same obligations to that freelancer as they do to uh, salaried staff. So uh, that was kind of a lot all jumbled together in one big question. But basically, you know, when do you get to start being a, a regular person 
And when do you have to be a reporter, basically, on social media? Well, I mean, that's um, that's exactly where these sort of insidious, I think, double standards around objectivity and identity and power can come into play, right? And we talk about on the podcast, the producer that I work with, Ramona Martinez, talks about this idea that objectivity is the ideology of the status quo. And so the way that that plays out in this conversation about reporters and social media is that um, if your sort of personality and your personal ideology falls within an acceptable range of status quo opinions, it's likely that you can be yourself on social media and be a journalist at the same time. And so um, Marketplace, the show that I got fired from, had um, a number of really high-profile staff who were quite opinionated on social media, but those opinions didn't include, say, um, a critique of white supremacy in the uh, administration of Donald Trump. But they included some things, right? I, I won't go too deep on what, but it was possible for, you know, a cis white straight man whose ideas were sort of more closely aligned than mine are with status quo ideology to be himself and be opinionated and have a social media presence without being fired. And then, of course, you know, I was fired for talking about my ideas in a public forum. And I, I know many people of color and trans and queer people who and women who have been punished, scolded, uh, taken out of their positions, threatened or fired for expressing themselves around issues of their own humanity, their own human rights, their own community in a public forum while also trying to be journalists. And of course, that's a complete and total catch-22 if your life has been dependent on your activism in order to survive. And I think we're at a point with transgender identity and existence in the United States where it is still true that, you know, almost all of us have had to really fight for there to be space for us to live and exist as ourselves. So you can't separate me from the fight in me. You know, the idea that I would be able to be myself without being controversial is ridiculous. Like I'm a non-binary trans person who came out in 1999. I've just simply never had the privilege of that kind of separation. There's all these examples, too, where, like, journalists, like, they don't have... A separation and it's kind of like it's sort of unspoken that it's okay an example you give is you know the small town reporter who who lives in the same community that they cover and they see a lot of their sources or a lot of people that they report on they see them out and about on a regular basis and they're expected to be you know members of the community but also be reporters and I I'll say when I read that in the book I kind of you know, did like a praise hands because I've been there. I've been a small town reporter a couple times and I always struggled with that. Like how much am I really supposed to engage with the community I'm supposed to be covering? And when would that be considered a conflict of interest? And I could never really get a straight answer. And I tried to observe my coworkers to see how they did it, especially the ones that had been in the communities for a lot longer than I had. And I still couldn't, you know, come up with a good answer. It, it often seemed like things were on a case-by-case basis as to when you could, you know, big up someone's 
business, local business, and when you had to be restrained or when you could be friends with them and when you had to not act like their friend. It was always a strange dynamic to me. I don't know if you if you also had that experience when you were covering smaller communities. For sure. And I think to me, kind of the bottom line there is that it's extremely complex. Like, of course, there's such a thing as a conflict of interest. That's very real. But to some extent, the journalist themselves is the only person who can ultimately determine like how deep that runs, right? And how compromising that might be and what's the level of like disclosure or taking oneself off the story that might be required. So, you know, for all my talk about objectivity is a mess and blah, 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 I've covered local issues in the small town that I used to live in in Ohio where I decided not to vote on the local issue because I knew that if I were trying to make up my own mind, it was something that I found like ambiguous enough that I knew that if I were trying to make up my own mind on it and focused on forming my own opinion, that my reporting on it would suffer. And so just focus on the reporting rather than focus on sort of my role as a resident who might vote in that. But that's an incredibly sort of subjective and internal process to come to that decision. And I think where things go wrong is news organizations attaching themselves to these blanket policies and this sort of performance of quote unquote objectivity that that ends up having the most severe consequences for the most already vulnerable people. But it's certainly real that, you know, we do want to do our best as journalists to identify meaningful conflicts of interest and how those might affect our reporting and talk about that with our editors and be transparent about that with our audiences. Yeah. And I always found it really frustrating when, even when you did go to great pains to try to be, as detached as possible in your writing and in your reporting, especially on like super contentious issues, like especially anything to do with schools, for example, building new schools or school bonds and stuff like that. Without Mm -hmm. a doubt, we'd always get emails or comments from readers like, oh, you guys are pro school district or you're against the bond. Like just, it was almost like just the fact that we wrote that there were people against a thing or people in favor of a thing. We were accused by somebody of being like biased for the other side. And I was like, you have no idea how much I am bending over backwards to not sound one way or the other on this issue. And you're still inferring that. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think the sort of trying to avoid the appearance of quote-unquote bias at all costs is this kind of slippery slope that doesn't necessarily lead to an increasingly trusting relationship. I think in a lot of cases it leads to this sort of toxic performance of, you know, false equivalency and false balance to try to avoid accusations that, as you're pointing out, might be inevitable from certain parties anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think, I think that... our sort of big scale example that's really easy to point to here is Donald Trump is going to lie. Some people are going to call it a lie or call him a liar. Other people are going to call that fake news. And there's no you don't get yourself out of that cycle by claiming more and more objectivity and saying, well, it's, you know, it's an untruth or a falsehood or whatever. That doesn't really save us from that problem of trust. You offer up a great antidote to that and you say you say maybe the solution to fake news is not objectivity it's like curiosity or I think you said like maybe instead of objectivity we should be pursuing curiosity I think this maybe came up in your interview with 
Nicole Hannah-Jones. And she kind of explains that when she began covering school segregation, she didn't go into it pretending in any way that she, you know, didn't think school segregation was bad. But she was like, present the facts, present as many facts as you can and get them straight. And that's what will hook people is the evidence for what you're saying. Yeah. And I think something that I appreciated with Nicole Hannah-Jones that she really focuses on as well is, is rigor. So, you know, a call for sort of debunking the myth of objectivity is not a call for a lack of rigor or a lack of curiosity or a lack of, you know, fact checking, for example. It's possible to hold that there may be multiple truths, sometimes even contradictory truths and multiple ways of framing the truth, but that it's still worthwhile to try to pursue it and to try to tell some version of the story. It's just that we need to be aware of it is only a version that we're telling and that we do have goals and values and ideologies that we bring, you know, to that telling. Another person who I quote a lot in the book and who will be on the podcast soon is Kevin Young, who has a really amazing book called Bunk about the history of hoaxes and fake news in the United States. And he talks about this idea of curiosity as a muscle that we need to build back up. And so kind of drawing on him, this idea that, you know, the antidote to fake news or to alternative facts or whatever isn't to sort of dig our heels in and say, no, you know, we're objective and we can show you and demonstrate exactly all the reasons why you should trust us. But instead to actually sort of engage our own and other people's muscles of curiosity so as to continue to deepen our collective ability to, to cut through alternative facts and fake news and sort of look into the complicated question of truth ourselves. But that, you know, when it comes to this idea that there's sort of one objective truth, that ship has already sailed. We are in the postmodern age. You know, no one can subsist on sort of fact and truth claims alone anymore. So how do we collectively sort of build up the muscle of curiosity to actually fight back against this sort of erosion of truth and fact without depending on a new form of, you know, gatekeeping around who gets to tell stories about their and our lives. Yeah, it sounds like part of what it's going to take to kind of improve the public's trust in journalism at this point and to improve coverage of of people and and issues and communities that maybe were not that were not being covered very well or at all up until this point is also changing how organizations get that news out to their to their readers. You give a really great example in the book of Outlier Media, I believe it is, and Sarah Alvarez uh, created basically like a database of like housing and uh, landlord information, and she she sort of equated it to like what stock market quotes are to, you know, upper income brackets and, you know, business readers who they're looking for those numbers, that economic news on a regular basis. She said her service basically works the same way, but it gives real, you know, economic information, housing and and landlord information to low income people who otherwise would have a really hard time finding that information. So I'm thinking maybe it's about also just changing a bit the delivery service of how 
you know, news gets out there and, you know, not just relying on the old frameworks of news presentation. Yeah, I mean, I love the example of Outlier Media in Detroit because the very structure of that news organization kind of calls into question assumptions about what journalism is and how it works and how it relates to social change. So there's been this um, idea of kind of a trickle-down model for journalism that, you know, um, a journalist, an objective, quote-unquote, journalist from outside of a community comes in, does a story about a thing that's wrong in that community, reports it back out on this larger platform that is read or consumed in some way by people with power to change institutions or policies, and that then those people with power respond to that information by making that change, and the change trickles back down. And Sarah Alvarez looked at the question of housing in Detroit and information around housing in Detroit and saw that you could do endless stories about deed fraud and mortgage grift and tax foreclosure in Detroit that were published in national or citywide news outlets that people in power might read or consume. And that wasn't actually helping the people who are being targeted by these things to stop them. And the information that those people need is who holds the deed to this house? Is the house in tax foreclosure? Are there water bills attached to the contract on this house that I don't realize are there when I'm signing it? You know, I've, is this house going to get taken away from me the minute I buy it or rent it or whatever? Because that's the, those are the real life consequences of um, of the kind of deep and systemic housing inequality and predatory lending practices, et cetera, that have been going on in Detroit for a long time. And so the service Outlier Media gets that news, gets that information, which is public information about homes to the people who need that information before they become victimized by the lack of information. And so it really highlights, I think, what the news can be when it is directly serving the needs of the most vulnerable. And it looks a lot different than a big, long investigative feature story, you know, in ProPublica or NPR or whatever. But it's actually very, very high impact in a different way. Do you still consider yourself a journalist or what professional label, if any, do you like to give yourself if you introduce yourself to someone and they said, you know, what do you do or, you know, what would your job title be? Because the term journalist is such a nebulous thing that it can mean so many different things at this point. And you've gone through so many different iterations in your career. I'd love to know how you identify yourself professionally at this point. I continue to work as a freelance journalist and writer and podcaster. Those are the main, those are the main things. And then, you know, more of my work in the last couple of years too has been also focused on doing political education and sort of facilitating transformative processes with other journalists. And I do a lot of that through an organization that I co-founded called Press On. That's a Southern-based collective focused on journalism and the service of liberation. And so we directly support the work of journalists, mostly of color in the South. And we do like training and capacity building, skill building work. And then I do like political and historical kind of education about these 
stories of the overlap between journalism and activism and try to get more of that sort of narrative into the world of, of journalism. So that's a big part of what I do too, but I'm definitely still very focused on the practice um, ethical underpinnings of journalism. Are you hopeful for the future of journalism at this point? Are you more concerned or maybe just maybe neither, maybe just kind of, you know, curious to see where it's headed at this point? Maybe both. You know, I think I'm I'm hopeful for the present of journalism. Like I actually feel like I am not a person who feels like the sky is falling and all good journalism has gone to the birds. And, you know, I actually think we're in a moment of so much kind of growth and expansion in terms of whose voices can get out into the world and the multitude of ways in which those voices can have a platform right now. Of course, there are tons of things to be, you know, scared about to do with media consolidation, as well as, you know, the the propagation of alternative facts and propaganda on social media channels and through technology that we don't all fully understand. But all of that said, I actually think we're in a pretty amazing moment in terms of how many different kinds of stories and voices are accessible through the various digital platforms and how media activists and media makers from marginalized communities are taking advantage of that. And I think it's it's not coincidental that there's a lot of hand-wringing in older generations and in mostly white journalism institutions about sort of the decline of standards at the exact time when more and more people of color, queer and trans people, young people are able to access these platforms. And I think that's just a wonderful thing. And so, yeah, more than anything, I'm hopeful about the present of journalism and curious about the future. Great. Well, that's good to hear, (laughs) considering um, everything that you've, you know, everything that you've researched up until this point. Louis, I, I want to thank you again so much for talking with me today. It's been a blast. And if you haven't picked up a copy of The View from somewhere, I highly recommend everyone go and find it. It's an awesome read. And also listen to the podcast, which is still at this point still being produced. You can find The View from Somewhere podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out itsalljournalism.com for some, you know, links to some of the uh, references that Lewis makes in the book and uh, for further reading. And you can also find their uh, links to um, the rest of his work. So, Lewis, uh, thank you again so much for talking with us and uh, best of luck with everything you do. Thank you so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, Emilio Brust helped with our booking, Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.